With that, I give you Madeline. Good morning. I am Madeline Cousins, aka Mad Dog, as my husband surprisingly informed all of you last week. So um, I think my husband Jim did a good job of telling our story last week. Um, our story of finding out that we had a gay son, the struggle we had with that, bringing us to acceptance, and then the struggle we had with our conservative church then at that point and leaving our church in the past few years trying to find a new place bringing us here to Blue Ocean. Um, as Jim said, finding out that our Ryan is gay pretty much rocked our world. And um, I remember shortly after Ryan came out, we were in Disney World and we were walking down the street and two young men walked by holding hands. And after they passed us, I remember looking um, at Jim with tears in my eyes and saying, I don't want a gay child. I don't want a gay child. And, and that gives you an example of what my reality was with acceptance at that point in time. So what I'd like to address today is how we got from there, how I got from there to now. How did we get to acceptance? And I believe, I believe for us it was two things that God used to change our hearts and our understanding. Um, number one was reading. I needed to understand, I needed knowledge, I, I needed books. Uh, that's, my, that's how I'm wired. Of course, I wanted this from a Christian perspective. And the first book I read from a Christian perspective was awful. It was depressing, it was void of hope. Um, but I, I kept going and I, I found a book called Love is an Orientation by Andrew Merritt and that had some hope, that had potential. So then I just took off from there, I cut loose. And I read um, Mel White, Shelley Wright, Jack Rogers, David Myers, Ken Wilson, Rachel Held Evans, Susan Cottrell, Matthew Vines, David Gushy, and Justin Lee. Uh, <laughs> I had fun, it was good. Um, and all these books and all these people, God used to give us a new understanding and to change our way of thinking. And I, I believe the books were, helped us understand our way of thinking with scripture and, and other, other things in that area. And the second thing that God used was we listened to people's stories. Uh, I believe this is sacred ground to sit and listen to someone's story. And I had the privilege to hear the stories of, here we go again, another list, of Kevin, Megan, Chad, Mark, Brian, Kareem, Dawn, Zane, Danny, Carl, Wynn, and Brigham. They told me things like, I was going to a Baptist college, I was gonna be a missionary, and then I came out and that all changed and now I'm a social worker. Um, sitting and listening, looking in my eyes saying, I know I'm doomed and God hates me. And over and over again I'd hear, but my mother, my father, my parents just won't come to our wedding. And I've told, I have sat and apologized time and time again for the hurt and rejection that our LGBT loved ones have felt at the hands of the church. I have told them that God loves them, and I have even told them that their mothers love them. Um, all these young people are looking for love and acceptance. And I'm so thankful that they trusted me with their stories. I learned so much from them. It is through them that I learned that people are what matters to God. It is people that God loves and celebrates. No one wants to be just tolerated. We all want to be accepted, loved, and celebrated. And celebrate we did on September 24th of 2016 in the mountains of Utah with Jimbo officiating. 
when our son Ryan married his amazing husband Brigham, surrounded by family and friends that were there to celebrate them and the love that they share. Of course, lots of, lots of tears were shed. And how could they not with groom one's father officiating? Or was he groom two? I don't know. I don't remember. Um, we were now able to see what we couldn't see six years ago. That it was, and it was a beautiful sight to see. I remember standing on the side of the dance floor and watching our LGBT friends laughing and dancing and having a good time. And I specifically remember standing there and thinking, who wouldn't want a gay child? Who wouldn't want a gay child? What a transformation. I had come full circle, and God had tenderized my heart in ways that I would have never imagined, and I am so thankful for that. And to end with, the celebration continues. Ryan and Brig have a healthy marriage and a great relationship, and by a surrogate, they are expecting a grandchild in June, and we're so excited. Um, we're so excited and happy for them and can't wait to experience the joy that this new little person is going to bring into our family. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Emily and Ken and all of you at Blue Ocean for making this a safe place where we are all accepted, loved, and celebrated. And Emily is in Guatemala, I believe, at uh, Rachel's brother's wedding. So they're they're having a good party in time. And that's why all the everything's falling apart around here in terms of our organizational <laughs> skills. It's pretty hilarious this morning. I did want to mention that we're on Easter Sunday, which is April 1st. We're having a baptism every year at Easter. We have a baptism. We have an actual baptism pool that we set up. That's like uh, I don't know thigh high or so and kind of large you can be fully immersed for baptism we do bap we're like an equal opportunity baptizer you can get sprinkled you can get dunked you can be baptized as an infant you can be baptized as a kid you can be baptized as an adult if you were baptized as an infant and you want to renew your baptismal vows as a an adult you can get baptized that way so it's kind of up to you uh, baptism Baptism's like the celebration of a of a struggle for freedom. So you know the the image of uh, going into water comes from the story of the uh, you know people of Israel in bondage in Egypt. You know going through the Red Sea and coming up to this like dangerous body of water and and you know being chased by malevolent forces and kind of you know gathering up their nerve and plunging into the water and finding that God is with them in the water and, and provides safe passage and the people of Israel you know moving into the promised land they had to go through the Jordan River Jesus was baptized in the in the Jordan River so it's really it's a celebration of that kind of the, the struggle that you guys went through to come to a point of freedom yourselves and responding to your your son you had to like dive in and, and so baptism is a way for us to uh, signify that so if you'd like to be baptized let us know and we'll get you all all squared away and give you more details <clears throat> so we're in a little series on on prayer and prayer in its various forms um, so you can kind of think of it as a sampler and uh, one of the one of the best things I learned from uh, John Wimber who was, if you don't know John Wimber, he died in the late 90s. He was the, one of the founders of the uh, Vineyard Churches. Actually, he, um, another key founder was Lonnie Frisbee. 
a gay man who was the spark for the Jesus movement in the late 60s and early 70s. That's an even more interesting story than the John Wimber story. I've got a gay, a Lonnie Frisbee um, CD that is like a documentary of his life and his role in the Jesus movement. I should, I should have you all over sometime and watch it. It's, it's, it's really uh, good. But the thing I learned from John Wimber was to notice the movements of the spirit. And this is in line with an older tradition in the church. The uh, Jesuits, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, taught people to be like sensitive to the movements of the spirit. In the Pentecostal tradition, uh, you're taught to be sensitive to the movements of the spirit. If you've ever heard the term witness, I got a witness that, that often means like a shiver up your back. Um, it's being sensitive to the movements of the spirit. And the gist of this, this is a kind of a folk wisdom from spirit practitioners. The gist of the idea is that the spirit um, is like the breath or like the wind and the spirit moves. The spirit comes and goes when the spirit wants to come and go. And there's a way to sense the movement of the spirit, like you might notice a breeze, a gentle breeze, by first hearing the rustling of the leaves in the tree. There are different, like, subtle signs. So Wimber taught people to be sensitive to certain physical sensations, uh, tingling, uh, the shiver, the classic Pentecostal shiver, the feeling you get when a, you know, cat comes to the back of your legs and, you know, purrs, and, and you get that, ooh, that felt good. And um, uh, so there's all these different ways of being sensitive to the Spirit. Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, it re is reported that he was moved with compassion. Um, but the Greek that is translated moved with compassion is a much more physical word. It means stirred in the gut. Uh, I think it's splenectomy. Uh, and it's the root of our English word spleen. So Jesus would like have, would get moved in the gut and he took this as the spirit moving in him to connect with a person in need and it led to some action on his part. So I think we probably all have different um, things that we notice that signal the spirit moving. For me, the reliable standbys are face and arm tingling, uh, getting a catch in the throat like it's easy to cry. Um, uh, I sometimes get this feeling of kind of intense social warmth and connectedness with a group of people that's like, it's like a, it's like a whoosh comes over me and I'm like, feel connected to whatever group and I'm like why do I feel this warmth with this group of people or you know it's like more than the usual kind of warm feeling you have uh, with your friends and so what I've learned to do is as I notice these things I kind of like say oh that's the spirit and I recognize I, I ascribe it to the spirit and that actually helps me to have uh, to improve my conscious contact with God which is one of the steps in the famed 12 steps. Um, so for me, the spirit sensations uh, happen most when I hear someone's story, recounting a significant, you know, going through a struggle and coming out the other side or just being in the struggle or uh, actually when Emily gets in her prophet preacher mode, I'll, I'll get it and she gets like earnest and, and or oh, she's like 
filled with conviction and it's like it's like a molten lead getting poured into my spirit and I feel like mm, yes uh, I'm with you um, when we're singing together is a very common time when I get the spirit sensation so I was I, was, uh, I went and saw a uh, Lady Smith Black Mombazo at the Ark on Tuesday night. Uh, it's an a cappella group from South Africa. And it was, it was less than a performance than like an open door into a culture that sings and dances for uh, comfort and strength and resistance and inspiration and pleasure. And, and I was getting the spirit sensations in, in the Ark. And just noticing that, okay, ooh, I'm getting the spirit sensations like help me have a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing closeness to God. And that awareness actually improves your conscious contact with God. So I understand that what I'm describing only sounds odd in a mostly Anglo, Western European, North American cultural setting that is um, slightly embarrassed or dubious about human beings being spiritual beings. This is actually, this goes back to the Reformation where the reformers kind of got suspicious of spiritual experience and a lot of us have inherited that suspicion down to this day. You know, every other culture, what I was just saying, every other culture would be like, duh, of course, like you're, you're taking these people's good time to talk about this stuff, you know, in a church service, I mean, where are these people that you have to say these sorts of things? What's, they pay you for this? You know, this kind of like. So what I want to suggest today is that we could all improve our conscious contact with God if we were more attentive to this subtle spirit sensations in the context of singing, of singing in particular. So Singing is not like worship, warm-up, or filler. It's more like a main course of, uh, of Christian worship. Um, by far the most used book in the Bible, uh, if not the most read or the most revered, the most used book of the Bible, bar none, is the book of Psalms. And all we have in the Psalms is, is a written text, um, but it's, it's lyrics to a song. Um, to songs, 150 songs, and there are weird little notations like Salah, that means like pause, and to the tune of so and so, then we don't know what the tune is, but um, so it's really like an artifact, a written artifact of this living tradition of communal singing. Um, the prominence of the Psalms in, um, in actually all the Abrahamic faith traditions, uh, Jesus quotes the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible is evidence, I think, that song or singing is a primary means of improving our conscious contact with God. So, um, you know, the terms people talk about meta-talk, you know, meta-talk is when you're talking about the thing that you're doing. So if I gave a sermon about a sermon, it would be meta-talk. And, and we actually use meta-talk to enhance our experience of the beautiful, right? So if you're at the Grand Canyon, you want someone around that you can like t 
talk about your responses to seeing the Grand Canyon. For, and, uh, you know, I've talked to strangers at times when, I, when I'm seeing something amazing or whatever. Lisa had to tell us today about this being her 12th anniversary. That's, that's MetaTalk. It was like the pleasure of her remembering it was, was amplified by her talking about it and sharing it uh, with us. So, um, uh, sex therapists will tell you lovers to talk about sex before, during, and after sex to improve the sex. So this is like meta-talk. It's important. The Psalms are like that with singing. So the Psalms sing about singing a lot. And there's a lot of lines in the Psalm that are that kind of meta-talk. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the whole earth. I will sing of your love forever. Um, a favorite of mine is a singing about singing line in the Psalms is from Psalm 68. He leads out the prisoners with singing. Um, you know, I think about Paul in jail and uh, maybe he was singing Psalm 68 when the earthquake happened and the prison doors opened and of course Paul being kind of a feisty guy, he didn't, he didn't just leave. He insisted the mayor come to apologize for false arrest. And <laughs> but anyway... So, if you were here last Sunday, I was trying to think, well, when did I feel this last? This is as I'm preparing the sermon. I said, I had my singing spirit sensations when we sang all the poor and powerless, all the um, lost and lonely. I think the chorus goes, we will sing out hallelujah, we will shout out hallelujah. It's got kind of a Leonard Cohen, you know, vibe to it, that song. Um, you might recall that uh, Jimbo, well, this is going to last, this is really stuck, you know, you've done something terrible by giving us those nicknames, but Jim um, told his story of being released from a kind of religious bondage. Madeline um, gave her side of that story, you know, adult son comes out, had to fight through this religiously mediated prejudice against LGBTQ people. Um, you know, their beloved Great if you're straight, church um, surrounded them with disapproval um, for their support of their son. And then Madeline and Jim just was like, actually, that's not okay. And, and they, they left that church. It was a painful loss to, to leave a church of, what, 30, 34, 35 years. A lot of deep friendships tend to evaporate sometimes. But the painful loss is actually the cost of a freedom struggle. So this is just the way freedom struggles unfold. Um, so uh, Jim told a story. I could identify with it. Um, I had been under that same bondage as a pastor, um, you know, overriding the intuitions of my heart and deference to the constraints of my tradition and its enforcement mechanisms. And, you know, until I saw the tradition was a form of what Jesus condemned. You know, when he said, you disregard the command of God, like love your neighbor as yourself, um, in order to uphold the traditions of men. In fact, I love this. In fact, you are quite adept at setting aside God's command so that you may keep your own tradition. I like sarcastic Jesus when he's, you know, it's like, in fact, you are adept. You're really good at setting aside the command of God to keep your own tradition. See, most freedom movements are a struggle. I'm trying to explain why I had the feeling I had during the song. So this is all related, please. 
most freedom movements are a struggle against the traditions of men that pervert moral, our moral conscience. Um, making slavery okay, making you know, child marriage okay, making ownership of women okay, and, and leaving or protesting or insisting on change always involves intense struggle. So singing that song, All the Poor and Powerless, All the um, Weak and Lonely, and singing it together with a group of people reminded me that, oh, I, I wasn't alone uh, in that struggle, that we have a company out in the wilderness. And you bet I was feeling the spirit sensations. And I was getting the catch in my throat and I couldn't sing a half a verse or a whole verse. And I, you know, it was, it was good. The next song is We Come Alive in the River. And I was like, oh my God. It was just, you know, um, I love that song. And it was playing on the same theme of, you know, coming to the river and being chased by the forces. And it's a scary river and you just, you dive in and, and but God's there in the river. You meet God in, in the turbulence of the river. And that's, you know, uh, you know, so I, I'm like, boom, it was like a double whammy for me um, last Sunday. So, some practicals on singing to improve conscious contact. First thing is that um, the prime power of singing as a spiritual practice is with others. And it's with others that a lot of this stuff happens. Of course, it does happen alone in the car and you know, all that. But the prime power of singing as a spiritual practice is with others. Um, when we sing with others, you know, like our hearts... Um, actually develop a synchronicity in heart rhythm. So everyone's heart rate tends to normalize to, a, to an average or a mean of the group. The connection that you feel when you're singing is, is deeply spiritual. I mean, I think anthropologists think that um, human beings uh, became like a uh, successful species because by singing with each other in larger groups, they were able to form group bonds with a larger group than like gorillas and monkeys and other primates. You know, the, the other primates will do pair bonding activities like, you know, sit next to each other and pick the, the fleas and the bugs that, you know, they, they preen each other. It takes a lot of work to do that, so you only can pair bond with like a relatively small group. Humans started singing and they found they could sing with groups of like 50 or 100 or 150. And they had pair bonding at a larger level and they could cooperate at a more sophisticated level. And that's part of like our, why we're such a dominant species. Maybe we should sing a little less, I don't know. But um, um, ignore that point and it doesn't support my thesis. <laughs> um, but... In our, like, Anglo culture, um, Anglo-dominant culture, we're kind of out of practice singing in groups. I mean, like, the national anthem is an almost impossible song to sing unless you're, like, trained to hit all those notes. And that's what the song that people sing in groups, right? If you're not part of a faith community, a church, when do you sing? You sing at birthday parties, 
and you sing the national anthem, we've got a national anthem that's hard to sing. Um, you, have you ever seen the football teams trying to sing their, their uh, you know, uh, university song? It's horrible. I mean, they're like, like there's no such thing as a key that ever emerges in, in uh, it's, uh, it's like, yeah, if, if you're not part of a church, it's like, it's not normal to sing with groups of people. But that's really abnormal, that it's not normal to sing with a group of people because human beings have always been doing this for forever. It's, we're, we're the outliers in this cultural thing. So as a result of that, many of us have to struggle through culturally induced self-consciousness to participate in group singing. Um, you know, my theory is it's a little bit harder for men to join into group singing because most men go through an adolescence where you're active, you're, you're singing, or you're, you're singing and your speaking voice changes and you go down an octave. And there's two or three years where, you know, adolescent boys are talking and they're wondering which voice is going to come out. And it's, you know, they're squeaking and it's hard, it's hard to, it's hard to like, I tried out for my middle school choir. I didn't know what octave I was in. I was like all over the map. And th there's a lot of boys in our culture, I think, who just opt out of singing in groups because it's, it's just confusing for a couple of years at a key period. Or I just think of the effect of um, the professionalization of singing. Like most of the, of the singing that we hear is, you know, on the radio or it's out, out it's, in, it's through, you know, through Alexa or whatever and our little Bose speaker, and it's all professionalized. And it's like, my, my sister's a, a professional violinist, and she says people don't enjoy concerts as, as much because in, in, if you're a violinist, there are certainly little squeaks and, and the strings make little noises that, that a great violinist can't keep them from making. And there, there are little pitch variations that even the best, but you know, the professional recordings, they digitize all the pitch. So it's literally pitch perfect. And so everyone's kind of gotten this strange ideal of what great music should. I, I think of it like it's like, if you know being a woman in a modern culture and and all the images of women are are like first of all they're they're models who are like live unhealthy lifestyles to attain a certain proportionality and then there's all the all the you know the digitizing of the images themselves and so you've got this impossible ideal and that's a kind of oppression for women who get like self-critical about their bodies because of this, you know, that's, it's, that's horrible. It's, and, and that happens to us in, uh, in singing. The manipulated ideal is the enemy of the real and it affects us in many different ways and I think it affects us in the area of singing with other people. So here's my communal singing recovery tips. Gently ignore your inner musical critic when you're singing with others in group. You know, don't, don't gently, be kind to your, your inner musical critic. Don't, don't get into a big fight with him. It'll just amplify his, his voice in your head. Um, you know, we all have an inner musical critic. Um, 
I'd love more black gospel music, you know. We don't have what it takes to do great black gospel music. I hope that changes someday. I would kind of like more majestic hymns because I, you know, I was an Episcopalian as a kid and I, you know, the only times I felt like the woo-woo in that church was when the organ was really going and it was big and all that, you know. And like, oh gosh, we don't do that. So, you know, you got to kind of just gently ignore your inner critic. Um, if I'm being too critical about worship, I console myself with the Rolling Stones uh, tune. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. And so that's all we need for worship. So um, when there are lyrics that annoy you, just pay them no mind. There are lyrics in the songs we sing that annoy me. And I just pay them no mind. That's the beautiful thing about lyrics. They, they, they move on. <laughs> You're not stuck. You're not stuck in them. It's totally fine to just say, oh, oh no, uh-uh. Um, don't be self-critical about your singing. So the beauty of group singing, um, especially with a band and amplification, is all of our vocal imperfections get absorbed by the group. It's kind of like dirt. You know, it's just like dirt takes care of things, you know. <laughs> you know, we want a clear, kind of murky, you know, dirty water. You pour it through sand and it just kind of absorbs the dirt and it's, it's fine. It works out. That's the beauty of singing in a group, you know. I, I remember one time I was singing behind a, a guy who was like, a, like from U of M School of Music. Oh, I remember his name. This is like from the 1980s. Sebastian Vitucci was his name and he had like a barrel chest and he was he was like a like going to Italy kind of a opera guy and there was there was a time when he was singing behind me and 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 it was vibrating through my chest and I'm like I'm like surely the resurrection has happened because I'm singing like Sebastian Vitucci I swear I want to record this it's you know it wasn't me it was Sebastian you know kind of going through my mm, whatever you didn't need that anecdote, but I found it interesting. Uh, so don't be self-critical about your singing. It all, it all comes out in the wash when you're part of a, part of a group. Um, like, I never hear anyone sounding bad. You, you, it, it, you know, it just, it doesn't, it's not an issue in a group. Um, I think um, as you're reacclimating yourself to group singing, it's fine to um, listen for a while. Like, if the only way you can enjoy the worship is by listening, well, go ahead and do that. I do that from time to time. I have, I have this dry throat thing, so I was drinking a lot of water before the service, and I didn't want to use up my voice by singing. And so, like, for the opening songs, I just, I just listened. And I liked it. It sounded good. I was thinking, I was kind of picturing myself, like, sitting next to God. You know, we were listening to the worship together, and it was like a different take on the worship. I, I just wanted to say, you all sounded really good this morning, and I was able to hear it and appreciate it, and for me, that was a kind of um, worship. So you might try that sometime. If we all do it, it won't work. Um, you know, I, I find it's helpful to remind myself, um, worship involves us, but it's not for us, and it's not about us. 
Like, it's, it's for God, right? <laughs> I was kind of crotchety pastor friend. He said, yeah, these people come up to me and they say, I didn't like the worship today. And I would say, that's all right. It's not for you, you know? It's like, yeah, it's good. Um, and the sorts of things pastors tell one another to feel powerful about themselves. Um, but I, I think of it this way. It's like, in relation to God, we're all preschoolers. And we're doing art projects together. And, you know, construction paper and crayons and Elmer's glue and glitter. You know, we got it all on a table. And we're making our pictures and we're taking them home to show mom and dad or mom and mom or dad or dad and mom or dad or Aunt Ethel or grandma or whoever will appreciate them. So that's worship. Uh, yes, it's America. We can criticize our worship ad nauseum. You know, at the staff level, we, you know, we talk about, oh, is the, how's the sound doing? And is this song working? Or is that prayer working? But that's just the container. That's the blah, blah, blah. The worship is the worship, whatever the container is. And so just engage the worship without the little inner critic, you know. Using your inner critic to engage in worship is like telling the preschoolers their artwork is lame. Like, it's not the point of the artwork. It's for, it's for God. In, in worship, we're celebrating our smallness in the vast universe. We're little fishies swimming in the ocean of God's love. And smallness is an advantage in that situation. Now, smallness doesn't mean insignificance. It just means smallness. So to engage worship, we got to dial down our expertise. Leave your cool in the cooler when you come for worship. You know, like the bass player can be cool for all of us in the worship band. You know, like Cassie and Ronnie can be cool for all of us, but we, we can just project all our amazing coolness on them. They could carry the burden of it for us. I think our I think our bass players are particularly cool. Um, but um, leave your cool in the cooler when you come to worship and you'll experience God more in the process of singing this song. So I'm done. That was an interesting sermon, wasn't it? I mean, that was like, like a free flow, interesting sermon. I'm like, where did that sermon come from? But this stuff I've always wanted to say, so I got a chance to say it. We're going to have a little meditation time. And we'll do this for two or three minutes. Um, you can kind of get yourself comfortable, relax. You're free to participate or not in the meditation time. We'll, we try to have it relatively quiet in the place, but it doesn't have to be absolutely silent. And I thought it would just be good to, um, I'll read over a couple of times, the Embracing Your Littleness Psalm, which is Psalm 131. Um, it goes like this. I'm using the Robert Alter translation. He's like the Hebrew scholar guy that does really good translations. Um, I'll uh, read it, maybe comment a little bit, and then read it again so you can absorb it. Lord, It's a short one, by the way. Lord, my heart has not been haughty, nor have my eyes looked too high, nor have I striven for great things nor for things too wondrous for me. But I have calmed and contented myself 
like a weaned babe on its mother. Like a weaned babe, I am with myself. A weaned child has learned to kind of comfort itself. That's an interesting image, isn't it? I've, as, a, as a baby who's old enough to be weaned, I've learned to comfort myself. And in that state of having comforted myself and calmed myself, I am with myself and I am on my mother. That's a, that's a really interesting, subtle image. And then, wait, O Israel, for the Lord, now and forever. So this is the communal sense of the psalmist. The psalmist is never just thinking of himself as an individual. The singing was always done with other people. And the psalmist here is talking to himself as a member of a bigger community. Wait, O Israel, for the Lord now and forevermore. Little, in our littleness, we have to wait for things. We don't get to control everything, so we have to wait. So let's just, I'll read it over a couple of times. Lord, my heart has not been haughty, nor have my eyes looked too high, nor have I striven for great things, nor for things too wondrous for me. But I have calmed and contented myself like a weaned babe on its mother. Like a weaned babe, I am with myself. Wait, O Israel, for the Lord, now and forevermore. Just sit with that for about 30 seconds. I'll read it again. Lord, my heart has not been haughty, nor have my eyes looked too high, nor have I striven for great things, nor for things too wondrous for me, but I've calmed and contented myself like a weaned babe on its mother, like a weaned babe I am with myself. Wait, O Israel, for the Lord, now and forever. And sit with that for another 30 seconds. Amen.